the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons and welcome to what promises to be another enthralling Tenuous Links podcast. Now given one of the topics, Shooter has opted not to get sued or not to, for us to get sued. So in his place, we welcome uh, backup VIP and uh, man with the longest title in golf, the executive vice president of Tour Edge Golf in North America, if not the world, which I think it is global, isn't it, John? Uh, John from Chicago, welcome on board. Philby, great to be here. Lovely to be back. I hope uh, you and all of your listeners down in Australia are well and happy and safe. Looking forward to the show. One of us is not going so well and happy and safe, John, and I believe that might be uh, coronavirus. <laughs> yes, let's. Craig. Well, why don't we just jump straight into uh, our loves and hates and let me kick it off with my hate and. My hate straight out of the gate is the dreaded coronavirus because I was down in Phoenix week before last at the Schwab Cup final and uh, very kindly brought back from Phoenix the coronavirus and was crook as a dog for a week, gave it to my wife. She was thrilled with that. I said, darling, you always say I, I never give you anything. Well, uh, yes, so we've been crook. It's been... Uh, a really, really bad and intense flu for three or four days and Rachel ended up getting pneumonia and, uh, you know, she's been quite knocked around but I'm pleased to report we are uh, on the mend, feeling better and, uh, yeah, Thanksgiving on Thursday and uh, my 10-day quarantine post-testing positive finishes on Thanksgiving. So gobble, gobble, let's get into the turkey. Would you now describe coronavirus, John, as a uh, hoax and something overblown? <laughs> Let me tell you, if this is what it feels like when you're double vaccinated and they say that reduces the severity of the illness in dr dramatic proportion, let me tell you, you do not want to be unvaccinated and you do not want to get coronavirus. <laughs> and, and look, we shouldn't be flipping about something that's so serious because, you know, we're, you know the loss of life around the world has been horrific and yeah. everything goes with it. But let me tell you, uh, we are really crook. But... Um, thankfully behind us, so saves me. I don't need my booster shot. I've, I've had the deluxe booster now, and uh, hopefully the uh, the antibodies will be kicking strong and uh, just booked a trip back to Australia in April, actually, for the first time in two and a half years that'll be. So my mum, who I haven't even told yet that we're coming home for a visit, will be tickled pink, and, uh, yeah, we can't wait to get back home and see friends and family and... Uh, like everybody that's living an international life, it's been an incredibly challenging and unique couple of years. Um, excited uh, to be welcomed home, no doubt, because um, I know you have you have definitely missed that. And and with the gates being closed, and now hopefully we can get back into normal. Now, now, just as you led with the hate, I, I too have a little bit of a, a hate, um, and and it's just some commentary around the implied connection that a young or an old Lawrence Donegan made about Ian Baker Finch, um, hopeless commentator and fan of insurrectionist criminal presidents. There was a photo of Ian Baker Finch who happened to be playing golf in, in the same group as Donald Trump uh, and a very long extension was made uh, potentially of, of that. Now, I don't mind him as a commentator, but is the hopeless commentator, John, something that I need to take off my rose-coloured Ian Baker Finch glasses? 
Mm, yeah, that's a good question. The, there is a bit of a knock-on, Finchie, over here that um, is really not only criticism of Ian, but is, is a little bit more far-reaching of the CBS and NBC crews across the board, and, and really since the retirement of jo- Johnny Miller. Um, the sycophancy of the commentary on, on all tour commentary now is just like, dude, we just want someone to call something as it is. That, that was rank. That was just... And, and, and the criticism of Ian is he can be a little vanilla-flavoured and you know everything's just a little too positive and a little bit too nice. And, and you know, golf uh, telecasting is in a very interesting space right now with... You know, it's really the the key driving force to a lot of the conjecture that's uh, around the world in tours and tour structure and monetizing the tour and creating the best product that's possible and maximizing the amount of eyeballs on golf. And uh, but hey, from from what's discussed over here, there is a feeling that it's all just become a a, a big fest of niceness on the PGA Tour, and week to week, it's just <laughs> you know, it's just everything's so nice, and everybody's so good, and it's just these guys are all so good, and uh, you know, when a guy hits a ranked shot, Johnny Miller had the courage to say, "Now that was terrible." Or the famous quote with Craig Perry is, "Now that's a golf swing that would make my mother puke." Um, or, or Ben Hogan, or it was it was something similar in defence of Johnny, but. Uh, you know, that type of character. And we'll talk a little bit, we'll touch a little bit later on, uh, I'm sure, on Andy Gardner from the PGL and, and some of his aspirations for how golf should look and some of the analogies that he draws with how other sports are now marketed and broadcast and how golf really needs to learn from that or run the risk of being left behind in these days of multi-billion professional Sports telecasting. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, there was also a, a Johnny Miller comment watching a replay of a, um, a US Open where he referred to the play was getting a little bit slow. And he said, if the USGA had have banned people or penalised them for slow play, Jack Nicholas wouldn't have won as many majors. I love the fact that he just had the courage to say it. So to your point, it would be like Wayne Riley, and I think this is, would be the ultimate, and I've moved on from this already, is that if we could get a Wayne Riley unplugged commentary, and for everyone listening in the US, listen to the European tour and listen to Wayne Riley, that's him dialed back about, I don't know, 80 or 90%. Whereas if you could actually get a Wayne Riley uncut commentating golf, I think it could be the most entertaining. Few. We talk about Eli and Peyton. Peyton Manning, John, I think Wayne Riley commentating golf, even on his own in a booth, could be one of the great delights. And speaking of delights, John, what do you love, John? Oh, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed. Uh, I'm a little... <laughs> yeah, uh, crush. I'm a little, <laughs> little sheepish. A little bit of man love coming out. But uh, my love is that I, I, I simply have to tip my hat off to the great Mr Bernhard Langer for achieving his sixth Schwab Cup title week before last and um, having had a little bit to do with him in the last 18 months and got to know him quite well, um, I, I just cannot sing enough praise of, you know, the professionalism and the the, the, the specialness of this guy, as, as, as Bruce McAvaney, would, he would describe Bernhard <laughs> as not only special, but he is very special. And... Um, he truly is, and I really rank him. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in a lot of different 
spheres in my professional career and being in golf and out of golf and a corporate life and blah, blah. And I've met some incredible people and been incredibly lucky to work for some great people and some mentors of mine. And Langer just stands right up there amongst the best of them when it comes to actually displaying all of the characteristics for you to achieve your absolute potential at whatever it is that you choose to be your profession. And, um, you know, everyone, you know, all the words have been spoken, but at age 64, um, most people don't know, he's been playing on one leg most of the year. He's had a bad left knee, and uh, any golfer will tell you a bad left knee is not a good knee uh, to be crook on, and, and you've seen it. Uh, creep into his game a little bit in the last 18 months. He, he can get a little little squirrely on the follow-through on that left knee, but, you know, he shoots 63 on the Saturday and breaks his age on one leg with a bat that's, you know, almost... An, and I was with him on Tuesday and Wednesday, and, in fact, we had a practice session on the Wednesday that we had to cancel because his back was so sore. Um, you know, you just have got to take your hat off to him and salute... Really, one of one of the, the the truly great players and 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 great achievers and great professional and a, a really really decent human to go with it as well and yeah so bit of a man crush I got to say as pathetic it might sound but man he's unreal he's just the best. So we referred to or I've referred to a few times of um, a Jim Collins book being talking about from good to great and this idea of Dave Scott rinsing his cottage sheets when he was at the peak of the world um, Ironman um, field is that he he wanted to be in control of everything that he possibly could and as axiomatic as, as that is um, how close to that is Langer is he just preparation is precise what he's, give us an insight into he, he's beyond that Phil I mean he's beyond the nth level of detail of preparation from understanding his equipment down to the finest level um we built a new eight and nine iron for him recently. Uh, it was in St. Louis about six weeks ago, and uh, he called me over, texted me, and said, "I'm on the range. Can you come and have a look at something?" And these eight irons were just bleeding like two yards for some reason, <laughs> you know. And but he could tell and he could feel it. And you actually, when he called it out, you could see they just had this really soft bleed to the right, and so there's something wrong with the club. And he's right, there is. And so we have to work on it to find out why in the freaking hell is this 8-iron, which is like built, just, you know, everything is to spec and as it should be, but it bleeds seven feet to the right. On a 100, Bernard, it's his 8-iron, 148-yard carry. So it's that level of detail. It's, you know, I was having a drink. I was down at Tucson earlier in the year and it was like five in the evening, range had finished, and they're long days working on the range at a tour event. Like you're up from seven in the morning on the range, pretty much on your feet going flat out all day. And so at five o'clock, the actual owner of Tour Edge, Dave Claude and I were sitting, having a drink overlooking the course. And it was dusk and it was nearly getting dark. And freaking out of the dark, here's Bernard with his notepad walking off the 18th green and he's walked the course. Now he's played this place where they play the Tucson Open for 20 years. But yet again, every year he's out there walking. Now, now there's nobody else around. Everybody's gone home. And so there are a couple of little examples of how he continues to prepare and, and do every little thing. And, you know, Dave and I were talking the other day and Dave walked around and followed him in a couple of rounds recently uh, in Michigan. And 
he remarked to me that it was incredible how safe Bernhard plays. Like he takes the safest line virtually on, on every hole and, and that's his method. He, he's learnt that if he plays that way and he putts well and he gets the occasional good shot, he's going to shoot four or five under and that's going to be good enough and that's the way he plays. You know, I see lots of other guys out there trying to hit hero three woods and, you know, hit little bleed cuts from 245 with a fairway wood to get on a par five to a tight pin. And like Bernard will stand and hit hybrid to the front left edge to the wider, chip it up, make four and walk off. So it's all those little things um, in every single aspect of his life. He is the consummate pro. So if you look at therefore Bernard, uh, and I'm going to get on to Schroeder's favourite topic here. So this is not a, a very uh, seamless link, a tenuous one at best. You look at the way Bernard prepares and all these little things. Do you then look at Rory and say, if you could just taste some of this water that Bernard, or taste the shandy that Bernard celebrates with, as opposed to drinking your own bathwater, that's just for you, Shooter, you could be in control of events as opposed to feeling the need to free the nipple. Yes, the free the nipple movement of Rory and Janet Jackson. Who would have thought we'd ever ma- <laughs> yes, who would have thought we'd ever make that connection? Um, <laughs> and it's the 20th anniversary, I think, of Janet Jackson freeing the nipple, which they con- which they continue to refer to as a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> Which, which is the greatest misnomer for a publicity stunt uh, in the history of broadcasting. But anyway, it's another story. Rory, poorie Rory. Rory's in a bad place. His golf's crap. He cannot play well when he needs to play well. And that's the ultimate test of great players can play well when they need to play well. And you go back through the history of the game and, you know, from Nicholas to Tiger... Uh, to all of the great, to Bernhard Langer. When they need to get it done, they get it done. And right now, and really for the last three or four years, and, and Rory's won a couple of secondary events, but have a look at his performances when he is absolutely under the gun. And he's been crap, like really bad. Ryder Cup this year played awful. I mean, just awfully embarrassing and let his team down. The last six of the last ten majors, first round, played awful. Needs to go out and get himself into the event. Plays awful. And then he's gassed three or four final round leads or where he's been close to the lead. And I think on Sunday he shot two over, ends up losing by four, led by three going, you know. Just really poor golf, which suggests there is either something fundamentally technically wrong or there's something fundamentally mentally wrong or a combination of the two whichever one it is it's it's a bad place to be because it's it's not easily turned around um you know we remember in tiger's comeback and he had the chipping woes but he was able to turn that around relatively quickly this is three or four years of pretty mediocre performance and the stats support it i mean he's a horrific player from 120 yards in um yeah i think he's really at the crossroads and you know, he might be the nicest bloke in the world and he might give you the greatest interview and Justin Thomas might jump on social media and say, you know, he's so passionate, he cares so much. But but his legacy is about winning events and being the cream of his generation. And right now he's not living up to that and his golf is crap. That's the bottom line. 
So you mentioned both physically and emotionally. One thing that we need to take into account, and again, uh, Lucky Shooter's not here, is is the environmental Rory, because it showed we had a great insight into his mindset uh, when he declared that he f- was sitting on his private jet on his own, flying halfway around the world, and he, was it uh, he felt an overwhelming sense of guilt. Um, so immediately, myself and a number of people I've spoken to read that quote and said he's going to start doing uh, Hideki and fly commercial. Uh, but no, what he's going to do is pay his way out of trouble by investing in another company in a desperate effort to get to net zero. I think Rory might genuinely have lost the plot, John. Look, I think it's a, it's a fair comment and uh, it's of it's it's the Clive Palmer ilk of... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's solve my carbon footprint by destroying one of Australia's great golf properties. Um, sorry, that's a that in is is a tenuous link, but one that's uh, genuine to my heart because I used to love Coolum. It was one of my favourite places in the world to go to holiday and play golf, and uh, he destroyed it within three years. Uh, but that's another story. But coming back to Rory and flying private, he and Prince Harry maybe need to have a little chat and. And discuss their carbon footprint and I don't know these guys have so much dough they kind of lose touch a little bit with reality we, I think they lose touch um, completely with reality and it was um, it was just interesting that that who gets a sense of guilt like really and even declares that but they're not guilty about flying privately they're guilty about my carbon footprint of flying privately but I'm not about to change that because I can't be seen to be one of the people I've got to be one of me. He rips his shirt. Oh, no, it's passion. It's all crap, what he's not prepared to do. He chases Bryson with length, which is acknowledged that he shouldn't do. He then has, you know, there's this bickering with coaches. Oh, it's the coach's fault. I'll get the coach back. He does not like being hunted anymore. He's very comfortable hunting and doesn't like being hunted. And the elite players in the game, like Bernard, like Tiger, like Jack, had this, come get me. I don't care. I'm not even going to look over my shoulder. I'm just going to win, and you're going to have to hunt me down. He does not like being in that position, is, is all that I can assume. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak for what's going through his head, but uh, the Prince of Podravita, as they call him over here, has, <laughs> you know, he, he, he's the spokesperson for the, the PGA Tour. He just has to start winning. I mean, all the rest is bullshit. When it's all said and done... And if, if Rory's legacy is to continue, and he has been one of the great players of the last 15 years, he either has to start winning big events or he is going to end up in a, albeit better, but similar to Norman S category of unfulfilled talent eventually. I mean, he's way better than that. But, you know, right now he's just got to win. I mean, he's got to these clubs. Shut up and hit better shots would be my advice to Rory. And uh, I don't care how nice a bloke you are or how philosophical or how deep a thinker you are about golf. Um, you know, if he, wants to, if he wants his legacy and his reputation as time goes by to be of one of the greats, he's just got to play better. Uh, and moving on to people who are playing better, John, um, the 63 greens in, consecutive greens in regulation that Jin Yong Ko managed to hit um, when Tiger's longest streak ever was 29. Can I ask you... You're 50 yards out. How many greens in regulation do you hit from 50 yards, being the very, very competent player you are? I'm going to declare two or three. Um, 
Are you, are you 63 from 63, John? Mm, no, I'm uh, I'm six from 63 right now. <laughs> <laughs> from 50 yards. Uh, no, I'm better than that. But isn't that a, a phenomenal achievement and really testament to, you know, we're starting to see the girls shine and finally be appreciated for, you know, there is a definite groundswell in them really global mm. golf media about finally recognising how good these girls are. And, and right now she's the, the cream of them. But, you know, Lexi's stats are pretty impressive as well. Pity she can't putt, but uh, her ball, ball striking is amazing. But, yeah, Jin Young Ko is, is currently setting a standard, as Lydia Ko did a couple of years ago when she was at her peak, that, you know, <clears throat> one day the average golfer will realise that if you want to go and watch golf... Uh, being played really well and it's purest form. Go and watch the girls because uh, you just can't relate to watching the guys play golf. It's just a different. You may as well go to Top Golf because it's just uh, you know a, a crazy different world right now. But uh, yeah, JYK, she is absolutely special. But there's a bunch of them. You know, all of those top ten girls are just phenomenal golfers. And, you know, the way they play and conduct themselves, they're, they're unreal. And we're seeing a genuine renaissance of the ladies' tour. And I'm sure Mike Wan is sitting back there at the USGA reflecting back that, shit, I, I did a pretty good job with that tour. Yeah. And, you know, whether it's the product and whether the, you know, like most things, you know, as they say, it's hard to polish a turd. He had a good product. But he marketed a really good product really well. Yeah. And, you know, those things start adding up together and they start creating appeal. And there's, there is way more personality if you watch a Sunday on the ladies' tour than a Sunday afternoon on the standard PGA Tour event. I mean, just chalk and cheese. It's incomparable. And, you know, there's, a, there's emotion, there's failability, there's incredible play, there's incredible shots, there's... Like, it's just got it all versus the slugfest. So, no, you've got to take your hat off to them and recognise just how bloody good they are. They're unreal. Um, I, I think they are. And then you look at Lydia Ko um, in terms of winning the, the lowest scoring average. And I saw a, a stat only today about Glenet Collette Vare. And so the Vare trophy is the lowest scoring average on the, the ladies' tour. But just so going back to the 1920s, uh, just as a reasonable um, record, uh, so Glenna Collette, six US amateurs, six North South amateurs, six Eastern amateurs, a Canadian amateur, and one year went 59 of 60 matches without getting beaten. Um, probably not a bad person to name the scoring average after, but you've got Lydia Coe's resurgence. You've got Minji Lee playing well. You've got Nellie Corder, who is just a freak. Um, and then you see the girls coming out of the Solheim Cup. I mean, look, women's golf is, is going to be strong. And just as we're looking forward, John, with another link to women's golf being strong, did Taylor Gooch choose the wrong week to win for the first time? Because as he's saluting, oh, the vibe, another bloke. The vibe over here for the fall series is so bad. Um, I believe Golf Channel ratings, uh, which have been terrific, I must say, and there's been some misreporting of, you know, Jeff Shackelford's been very strong in how poor ratings on Golf Channel have been this year, which I'm shown data by Golf Channel, which is a little different to that because the key events are still doing great. But this fall series has just been absolute schlock. <laughs> um, I mean, it's really been vanilla. And I'm sure Taylor Gooch is a great bloke and a really good player. And good luck to him, just like good luck to Lucas Herbert, who has had an incredible leg up by winning in Bermuda. But 
this fall series is nothing but a uh, it's really f fuel to the fodder of, of people like Andy Gardner from the PGL as to what is actually wrong with the PGA Tour and its structure and the way it's driving golf to its lowest common denominator. And eventually that will bite professional golf on its ass or the men's professional uh, game on its ass. If someone's not prepared to stand up and realise, are we really putting out there the best product possible and are we maximising the interest and eyeballs in the watching of the professional game and right now the, the jury is definitely very much out on that um, and, and structurally and I'm sure we'll touch on the PGL and a little bit later but you know there's, there's a light being shone upon this that's that's not been since I think it was 68 when Arnold and Jack ripped the tour apart uh, I think this thing has got real legs. I, I think there's genuine belief that there's a better way of doing this and the PGA Tour's stranglehold is perhaps not as strong as maybe what most people may think. If you look at it over a, a medium term, in the short term, of course, they hold all the aces. But, uh, you know, eventually commercial reality will always win and, and, and it looks like, you know, there's some pretty good arguments being put up. And not only that, with it, look, the wraparound season, as Mike Clayton's been very strong on, as being a major contributor to killing world golf um, in terms of what used to happen around things. I mean, Norman's excuse was always, I can't come and play the Australian Open because of Thanksgiving. And he did come down and play it a hell of a lot. And, and you know, well, I'm not knocking well, he came and, Norman. Well, he came and played it when he got his million bucks from IMG in appearance money each time he came down. So, yeah. you know, there's a caveat to it. Look, I hear what you're saying, but at the end of the day, the fact that the Australian tour has been destroyed is not an argument for restructuring the world's premier golf tour. You know, that's something... No, but it is... That's something Australia's got to deal with, and if America continues to create a great product through that fall series, Australia's screwed and there's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, I'm, I've heard it for so long. I mean, at the end of the day... Um, you know, you, you can't blame the PGA Tour for that. They're just doing what they think's best. Now, the the real question is, is what they are doing, is that what's best for the PGA Tour? That's the key question, because whatever happens in Australia is irrelevant. Um, which was the initial question about... Um the initial question then about Taylor Gooch is that from a timing point of view, and I I wasn't necessarily delving into the same way, but he chose to win the same day that Tiger Woods showed put up a video of him yeah. hitting balls. Yeah. So, which meant that no one actually knew that Taylor, like of all the weeks, that's what I mean, the other irony of it, forgetting the fact that Fall Series is on the nose. He finally breaks through for his first win. Here's Tiger. Congratu you know, halfway through the congratulations, hang on, we're just getting word Tiger's hitting balls. And then the whole focus moves on to moves on to Tiger. But but I think you're right. We may as well move on to, um, you know, PGL, John, because you quite rightly pointed out, you know, when we're doing um, and, and invited you on to do this podcast. He said, well, before we're going to do it, you have to listen to the No Laying Up podcast with Andy Gardner, um, who may well be the best salesman I've ever heard since um, Ray Drummond. Um, it, it was the most... I think there were three questions asked. Yeah, he's... In uh, two hours. Unreal. I mean, he could sell the John J buggy just like Ray could... <laughs> um, and he, he could he could sell sand to the Arabs 
which is probably a very poor analogy in the current climate. And uh, maybe he hasn't quite been able to sell sand to the Arabs, but he's pretty darn good. Um, and again, I'd encourage all of the golf baron listeners that have a, an interest or a passion in world golf and professional golf to it's two and a half hours of him basically presenting the logical case for what's wrong with global professional golf, what's wrong with the PGA Tour, uh, the underlying structural weakness of the PGA Tour and how it cannot build value for its core members, um, and without getting into the detail, and but you know, its non-profit nature doesn't allow it to distribute any wealth created to its members who are PGA Tour players. Um, it's the fattest of fattest bureaucracies, um, and and he presents a presents a very very powerful argument to say, you know, and I when I first heard this teams thing with golf. You know, I kind of thought, well, that, you know, that's, that's cheesy and that's whatever. When you actually work it through and you look at then the underlying opportunities that this different structure creates and prevents for, you know, golf telecast, um, any sports telecasting now is, is ultimately all becoming about engagement. And the ability to create a format for golf that dramatically impacts and increases the engagement of the viewing audiences and encourages new and younger and more diverse audiences through more interesting and diverse watching platforms to engage with golf, at the end of the day, will make golf as a global sport a better game. And he mounts a really powerful argument to say that currently... The structure of the PGA Tour is, is virtually the antithesis of that. It's virtually at the exact same position as in 1968, which forced, at the time, Palmer and Nicholas to create the breakaway, which became the PGA Tour from the PGA of America. Um, yeah, no, very compelling listening. And, yeah, this guy, this guy can sell some. Maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid, but... Uh, you know, he mounts some really powerful arguments that uh, I'd encourage everybody to just have a listen and take it on board for what it's worth. And I think in terms of the polish of his presentation, and this is the thing that, that he wasn't uh, ashamed to say, is that he used this podcast. This was his presentation to the playing group. Because they haven't, he hasn't been given an opportunity to speak to them en masse, he actually declared, this is my chance through the No Lying Up guys to speak to the PGA Tour members to let them know that here's how I'm looking after you and here's how we're planning on looking after you. But one thing that, that struck me about it, and he was referring to golf, and, and Damo, again, has been big on this. He was referring to golf the same way you'd refer to English Premier League soccer or NFL or the NBA. And this is the wraparound season question. Is He said, you need to allow me to miss it. One of the things that's most compelling about his belief with his Champions League team is you have to give me the opportunity to have a break from it, to realise what I'm missing, to have a thirst to go forward with it. And I think when it comes to the wraparound season, I think to your point, if the PGA Tour can create a good enough one that's a good enough product, so be it. But if I get golf thrown at me all the time, then I never have that, oh, golf's, golf's coming, golf's coming. And so I really just like that one, I mean, I, I, there was a lot, that I liked and a lot that got the brain going. But allow me to miss it would have been music to shoot his ears because 
like cricket. Allow me to miss it. And then I'm going to have a thirst to get it back. I mean, there was a bunch of really powerful points he made, and, and, and that was just one of them. And, you know, there's no doubt that the wraparound season, the length of the PGA Tour season, it's simply a money grab from the PGA Tour to service the bottom level of uh, the PGA Tour constituency. And in some respects, is that the PGA Tour's fault? Because at the end of the day, they're a non-profit organisation servicing the interests of their members, which are the 250-odd members of the PGA Tour of North America. But that charter is different to creating the most compelling product. And I think this is the underlying strategic dilemma for the PGA Tour, is there is a misalignment between the role of the PGA Tour versus what ultimately will create a better product and threatens and becomes a strategic threat to the PGA Tour is that the fact that, you know, those things are misaligned. And you look at the most valuable commodity in media, I think the English Premier League and the NFL in the US are the two highest value commodities. Now, NFL here runs from basically early October through till early Feb. So basically... I've got, Super, through Super Bowl, yeah. yeah it's, it's literally six, 18 weeks. And it's the number one gen, revenue generating... Like, And until you've lived in the US... I mean, I am so into NFL football. Because in part, you're forced to be. Because, especially for, for those of us that live up in the north in the wintertime... Like you're kind of stuck inside a lot, so you you do watch a lot of TV, and a significant amount of the content is NFL football, and so you become a little addicted to it. And it's brilliantly broadcast, and you know from they broadcast Thursday night in a different way that they broadcast Friday to the main game Sunday. Saturday they play no games at all. That's reserved for college football, which is another huge revenue generating behemoth. And then Monday night they have this experimental where they basically film the game and have Eli and Peyton Mannings sitting in their living room just talking shit uh, about the game for the entire game with a couple of special guests. And, you know, that, they throw in some interesting insight during it. But it's so foreign. I mean, I would, I, I, I could only imagine uh, seeing AFL telecast that way on a Monday night with uh, Dermot uh, and uh, Jason Dunstall just sitting there, just basically bickering at each other about a whole lot of nonsense and, uh, yeah, getting the odd guest in to come in and throw a few pearls. It's pretty cool. With, with zero production quality, whereby it's, oh, he's hungry, he's just gone off to get something to eat, effectively. <laughs> it's kinda... yeah, he just walks off. Just absolutely walks. Goes and hits some golf shots in the simulator. Um you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting way to break out of the stereotype of just because we've done it that way doesn't necessarily mean it's the best. So relating this back then to the PGA Tour, I think the great crossroad that's going to come over the next two, three, four, five years, because none of this is going to get resolved in the short term. No. I mean, the PGA Tour, are, they're just not going to come together and, and Andy Gardner can talk a good game about wanting to work with the PGA Tour, but... <clears throat> in my view, that those guys are protecting their their plot and, and the Americans can be a little insular, it, it is fair to say. So they're, they're not giving up their power and entitlement anytime soon. And 
um, it will take the true breakaway, and and money's going to win out because if if the PGA Tour are producing a product that generates seven hundred million a year, I mean, in revenues for its various stakeholders, if the PGL can find a way to monetize that for three billion, eventually they're going to win, um, and eventually the best players will gravitate because. For all of the nonsense that carried on at times with certain Australian podcasters about the extreme riches of the uh, PGA Tour <laughs> and, and how much money they make, the fact is that the top 20 players in the world, the people that really uh, <clears throat> turn the needle here, are actually not particularly well played when it comes in a parallel comparison to NFL football, basketball, even hockey, you uh, know, pro rata perspective so there's plenty of scope you know these guys in the nfl are signing 500 million dollar 10-year deals to play quarterback uh and i think uh well i saw a good stat the other day colin marikawa in his first two years as a pro has won 16 million in prize money and is the best player since tiger so the money's not extreme um but now we've got the PGA Tour and, and the first signs you've seen of them just being almost belligerent to being open to change and doing what's good for for golf as a product versus what's good for the PGA Tour and a charter. So last week they announced increases in prize money in key events here. Uh, FedEx Cup pool's gone from $60 million to $75 million next year. FedEx Cup winner is going to take 18 million this year instead of 15. Pip money is going from 40 to 50, and the pip is just a joke. I mean, it's just an absolute handout. Um, and so eventually, yeah, the cracks are going to show. In, in my view, commercial reality ultimately always will prevail, and you know, in time. If, if these guys' stones are big enough and they're willing to persevere, if they have true belief that this is a better product and, a, and better for world golf and, and, and produces greater wealth for all of the key stakeholders in golf and not just the PGA Tour and its narrow membership, you know, ultimately the commercial reality is going to prevail. It's just how long is that going to take? And, and do they have the fortitude to stay that journey? Yeah, and it was declared that that breakaway is not in the, I mean, it's changed a massive amount, hasn't it, in, in 18 months? Because it, it's gone from being breakaway and therefore the Saudi Golf Super Golf, the SGL thing and the PGL are the same and not the same. And now one's a breakaway and one's not a breakaway and one's one's fo- trying to get folded in to the PGA Tour um, and one isn't. One, uh, because I'm a conspiracy theorist, um, if the PGL was an agent-led uh, rumour it was it was the Kaiser Soze of golf, in that um, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. The agents have then said, "Some I need someone to pitch this to the PGA Tour so they do react because that's all they're doing is reacting, and the PGA Tour is exposing themselves to your point before as just being a reactionary body. So oh, we've got a threat. Actually, you know what? We do have some more money. We we decided to only build half the moat." around the new headquarters rather than the full moat. So, you know, and not use salt water, Himalayan salt water. And, um, but, Phil, let me draw you back to some of your academic theory from your well-studied younger days. And, and 
Andy Gardner puts it well. He says the solution for this is not just throwing more money at the top players. The solution is actually creating a better product for golf that makes fans happier. And if fans are happier and more engaged, you create a much bigger pie for golf, which remunerates then all of the people in players in golf. And it's natural in the top players rise to the surface of that. So unless you're addressing the underlying infrastructure that's the root of the problem, any money the PGA Tour chooses to throw at short-termism and increasing FedEx Cup and just chucking money at the same shitty structure with too much golf, with too long a season, with too many players, you know, run 100 in the world, make a million net after year, really do nothing, be invisible... I mean, um, at my company, Tour Edge, we, we are looking at a whole bunch of growth opportunities for us in the future. And one of them is investing more in the PGA Tour. And at what point in time <clears throat> would we invest in the PGA Tour? And if you look now and talking to several player managers, I mean, outside of the top 15, guys, you're just wasting your dough. Like no one, and with respect, you look at, go through the... The, the PGA Tour money list and go from 40 to 100. And outside of the guys who are legendary on their way down, like, <laughs> you, you, be, you I struggle. Like, I worked in the business forever and I struggle to know who this guy is and, and picture his face, let alone come up with 600,000 to create a brand partnership for, with him to help me build my business. So in, in itself, that starts to tell you, hang on a second, that, you know, we're the sixth largest hardware company in the world and all of a sudden that's where we could enter the market in there. Like the, there there's something structurally wrong um, when you look at it that way. So, you know, that's, that's a, the opinion of one, but I think the PGA Tour are faced with many a long challenge and throwing short-term money at it, yeah, we'll, we'll placate, uh, but... Typically, history will sh- will show you that the commercial reality will prevail and when a better product crystallises, it'll gain momentum and someone will have the stones to invest in it and if they build it, as they say, they will come. So if we deal with that and we deal with all the issues of the PGA Tour and the PGL and whether it happens or doesn't happen, it must from there leave an opportunity for the Champions Tour, John, which is the wheelhouse currently of... of- your company and of Tourage, but but there's something going on. Is there as much buzz around the Champions Tour as there is around ladies? Because there seems to be still some um, who needs old people feeling amongst some some other rather large podcasts that that in North America, like oh you know just they're all walking around with their dockers and their sweaty asses and all the rest of it. But we're seeing more players push through, and you're seeing Mickelson, you're seeing Jimmy Walker's comments. Um, about the Champions Tour and Ryan Palmer. Um, and then, you know, you look at some other guys who are on their way. So Brian Gay, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Rory Sabatini, the, the Slovakian Rory, um, Stuart Sink, Pat Perez. The boy from Bratislava. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but even Henrik Stenson, and from an Australian point of view, you know, we've got Sendon back out there. You've got Appleby playing again, Allenby. Is there as much um, buzz in the Champions Tour and where that can grow over the next five years or is that an afterthought for everybody? I mean I think that's a fantastic question that I, I'm not 
I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm completely qualified to speak on the health of that tour outside of the following. And I think Andy Gardner offers up some insight in what ultimately should and I think will make professional golf uh, more compelling at the highest level is he talks about the sports who have grown and prospered are those that can develop their athletes as personalities. And the huge advantage the Champions Tour has, that work's already been done. So there isn't a developmental role in creating your events and having to build personalities and create friction and whatever. Well, that's done because the second fill gets out there, um, you know, and if you look at the current crop that's out there, the, the, the cream of what the next couple of years, Mickelson, Furick, Els, Singh, Goosen, uh, the players you've mentioned, um, like they're strong personalities and they're interesting to watch and they all still, they all still play pretty, pretty good, but they're also a little bit more fallible. So you hear, you do see the odd rank shot out there. I mean, they're really good, but you do see the odd one. So it's a little bit more relatable. So if those things are defined as the things that create engagement and help create engagement with audiences, now the young set and the Andy Johnsons of this world who, personally, I don't quite understand what Andy Johnson has against the Champions Tour, but he absolutely, it's like a mission in life to toast it which I think is a little unfair. Um, but putting that to aside, um, ratings on the Champions Tour are solid. Um, the big question mark on the Champions Tour is how much money is the PGA Tour having to invest in the Champions Tour and is it a viable standalone commercial proposition as it is? And if you take the riches or some of the riches of the main tour away, you know what's the impact of that? And, and that's... That's an unknown. Um, so, yeah, I think the product that the Champions Tour is putting out is terrific. I think the Champions Tour would be a perfect experimental base to create a team's format. Um, and, and knowing those 60 or 70 guys, that would be so cool. Um, so who knows where that might evolve to, whether that could be a proving ground. Um, time will tell. Because uh, you can then... What allow them to to take the the break off or the persona break off that they may have had, and realise that they do have a personality as opposed to being so conservative, um, which has happened on the PGA Tour is is that there's just not enough of them, and so when we see a, um, a Morikawa and his smile and his eyes lighting up like Simon the Likeable, everyone kind of shifts to say, yeah, I I dig him, I, I kind of like where this guy's going, even Ram, the passion, as opposed to Rory, the shirt ripper. But Ryan Palmer made that interesting comment about um, Super Golf League or Premier Golf League or any other bloody golf league that you want to call it. Um, and he said about the Champions Tour, he said, what could they pay me over the next five years as to what, what I could make on the Champions Tour? The PGA Tour has said, if you participate, you're out. But could they enforce it? I don't know, I'm not a lawyer. But but this idea of, so their eyes are already on the Champions Tour. They, these guys are not willing to just lie down and say golf's done for me once I've left the PGA Tour. There's something viable they're already seeing. And given the fact that the PGA Tour is for the members and is not for profit, there is an obligation in a sense for it to continue to be propped up. So they have to make it the best product they can. Absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, just because those guys turn 50 
they don't stop being constituents and key constituents of the PGA Tour and their membership. They just become less competitive in the main game and, and hence the formation of the PGA Tour champions. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a, uh, a place for it as there is in professional tennis, in the, in the legends there. You know, I think golf lends itself better than tennis because of the fitness factor and it's a little bit easier to play golf at an older age than it is to play tennis, so the product is better. Um, you know, you, you look at Imanes. I mean, I, I defy anybody not to smile when Imanes holds it from 15 foot and gives it the frickin' swashbuckler and... I mean, that's what sport needs. And you don't see that on the PGA Tour. And that's the PGA Tour's problem and uh, that's what's going to have to be addressed. Whether through art, you know, or you create this artificial and bullshit tension through the Bryson Brooks dispute. And then all of a sudden that's, that starts to create angst that gets out of control. And that's the last thing the tour wants. I mean, on the one hand, it was fantastic because all of a sudden this interest went through the roof, but then it got out, out of control. So how do you consistently encourage engagement and interest? And coming back to Andy Gardner, he says, well, you do it by creating a better product that's more multidimensional, that has more touch points, that has more interest factors, that every week, you know, he made the beautiful point. Why are we 48 players? Because the, the broadcasters said, listen, then we can have a shotgun start five hours of broadcast time, you get to see everybody. So whether you're a, a, a Rory fan or a Spieth fan or a Brooks fan, just because they're not in the top three, which is invariably the top four or five is all you see on a Sunday afternoon, you see everyone because also the team's concept brings them into the broadcast because they still have a role to play, either because they're playing well or they're absolutely trashing their team. Um, it's an interesting, a really, I mean, the parallels he draws between what potentially individual and teams golf contest and Formula One is absolutely fascinating. Um, yeah, and open, it definitely opened my eyes for sure. Um, yes, and, and that idea of creating communication and being wired up. I mean, it's all the stuff like, like we need to see something new and fresh built around a core product and that's that's what I probably like most about PGL now is that we're not trying to replace the PGO Tour we're trying to be a little uh, amalgam to it we're trying to be a, a, a really big bolt-on that'll be a highly profitable and bi big money spinning bolt-on but we're not trying to say there is no it's us or the PGO Tour um, just with their number of events um, hence we don't want to run a breakaway we we just want to make everyone Lots of coin, but you you can't help but wonder at some point in time. There's got to everyone has got to what's in it for me. Everything still has to be commercial, and this idea of throwing in a hashtag grow the game is not sufficient enough to say it's about growing it or it's about growth. When they talk about parking some money in a foundation to contribute to the growth of the game, because I'm not sure that anyone really gives two shits where the game grows. Everyone just wants consumption to increase whether it's be my more people or or less um, or otherwise but one thing about the champions tour that i will say that was very pleasing from an australasian point of view was the emergence of one s elka um, who in nine events on the champions tour managed to make more money than he'd made in his entire pga tour career um, and then this is the other thing then the champions tour can provide is 
opportunity for people who just didn't quite yet still have enough. Because um, after his win, he, he was quite emotional. And, and you, again, you saw the personality. Um, but this desperation to get onto the Champions Tour reflects either the, the thought of it being easy money or maybe that there is actually a really strong future for it. Yeah, I mean, it's a bloody great story and it couldn't happen to a more you know, self-effacing, humble, decent guy. I mean, it's just a guy who's really just belted away at it for a long, long time. But having said that, you know, had the ideal preparation to come out on Champions because he's really been competing and competitively out on Corn Ferry against younger guys on longer courses. He's had an ideal preparation to come out on Champions uh, and the courses are a little shorter and they are a little easier, uh, truth be known. Um, And what he's achieved has been incredible. And I'm pleased to report for many of those events he had a two Reg Exotics hybrid in the bag, um, which is also pleasing. But no, ripping result for him, won 1.1 million in nine weeks as a Monday qualifier and kept top tenning in every week to get a start next week. And you talk about singing for your supper, it kind of doesn't get, uh, you know, you don't have to sing much more loudly than that to, uh, to find a way. So good for him and couldn't happen to a nicer bloke and all of the guys on tour rejoice at his success and it's just been you know the, the talk of the tour and and everyone's thrilled and and mind you he's a jet like he's a really good player if he was if he was 25 he'd have a stellar career in front of him but he's 50. Um, now, now moving on from all those issues onto something a little bit more Chicago-esque that has an Australian connection John um my my very dear friends at OCM have gone decidedly silent after spending a considerable amount of time in the US because no doubt they're working on a, a master plan that I do know for a fact because I did bump into them the other day that it's coming to a vote, um, I think, on December 18th. But I couldn't uh, really squeeze or ick any information out of them, so I'm hoping that my man on the ground in Chicago might have something a little bit more for me and my obsession with Medina number four. It is amazing what can fall off the back of a truck if you just happen <laughs> if you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. So having had a look at the proposed master plan for Medina that's been presented to the members, and as you rightly say, we'll go to a vote, I will say one thing. The OCM boys have not gone in there quietly because it <laughs> is a radical radical reconstruction of Medina number three. Uh, and they've gone places that I thought, <clears throat> not that I'm any architect, so I'm not qualified to, but as a player and, and you know, Medina had six, what I thought, unreal holes. Six, yeah, they're decent. And six shitty holes that, you know, were pretty much mid, yeah, Midwest parkland golfs that were just there. So I thought, that, well, they'll probably try and tweak the, the, uh, the weaker holes and not too much. Well, let me tell you, they have gone for the jugular and, uh, you know, moved the tee back over the water on 18, dramatically reconstructed signature holes at two, which is a 180-yard water carry par three where they're now moving the tee, so there actually isn't a water carry for the members. Uh, holes like 13, which is a 230-yard par three, uh, all water carry to a revetment green, so it's either on the green or in the piss. 
Um, brutal. It's unbelievable. Uh, 17, same deal, rerouting, moving the T, 80 yards. So no, really uh, significant changes from uh, what, what I have been shown. And so good on the boys and good luck to them because, yeah, they're, they're really uh, put their, their, uh, putting their imperature tour on what is a, you know, a landmark golf course in the US. And, of course, we'll be really under the spotlight when the President's Cup gets played in 2026, which is the goal of the master plan to be completed. And so the world spotlight will be on it. So for a, um, a boutique firm from Melbourne, good on them. Uh, I mean, they're incredibly qualified, successful guys who know what they're doing, and I have the world of respect for, for Jeff and for Mike, and uh, it's going to be big. I hope the vote gets up because uh, Madonna needs it, and it, it will create a point of difference for the course that, that, again, elevates it back up to a level where it belongs in the top 20 or 30 courses in the U.S., yeah, and I think it's it, it was genuine excitement. Like as I say, I was told nothing other than um, expect something different. And I don't know Medina well enough to know, but I but there was a twinkle in the eye of both Ash and Michael that suggested to me that they're really excited um, to see this come to fruition. Uh, as they are around Long Island, as they are around Huntingdale, as they are, uh, I mean everything that these boys are touching is turning to gold and that's not an accident so you get lucky once you don't get lucky twice everything they're touching be it Lonsdale links be it Sandy links be it Shady Oaks which is continuing to get extraordinary reviews in North America um, and I have no doubt that their doorbell will be, doorbell will be ringing um, and they'll get to a point where they won't have to pitch anymore they'll be pitched to saying we'd like you to come and do our course and this is the compelling reason why um and i can't wait i, I just can't wait to to watch the journey and as, as we've always said share the journey with them no no doubt but uh, let me tell you it's analogous to so that the the magnitude of some of the changes would be like uh okay we're going to shift the 10th tee at royal melbourne west 50 yards to the right to reduce the angle of the hill to make it a little bit easier for the members so they don't have to, like, they are significant changes. And pick your favourite hole at your favourite sand belt course or five at New South Wales. It's five, six at New South Wales, the par three off the water to say, no, we don't want to walk all the way back there, you know, across the bridge. You know, we'll bring the tee back to the mainland so it's a bit easier for the members to have an option to come straight up the, you know, it's... Uh, they have not held back from from what I am told and have seen. Well, well that, that is exciting. Now I'm even more desperate to have a tea time there. Um, John, can you give me just um, a quick one? Because this has come up a little bit over the last few months. Supply chain. Um, you're in a pretty good position to speak to it about the impact on Asia and everything else. Can you just give our listeners an insight into where things are at from a supply chain point of view? Because it was interesting to see that Talamade have bought the Nassau Golf Ball Factory um, in Thailand to own as much of this um, vertically as they can. What what are the challenges with supply chain and where are things at as you'll read? So the golf industry is in a fascinating place where effectively for the past, <clears throat> I'll call it 20 years, 15 years, has been essentially flat from a global demand perspective, you know, little up, little down, 
outside of the GFC in 08, 09, take that out of the equation. On the supplies, so on the demand side, basically you've had no change in demand for the best part of 15 years. And economics will invariably tell you then if with very flat demand, prices will continue to fall lower and lower and the business becomes less attractive for virtually every participant in it. So we went through a long period there where uh, competition at retail was fierce, margins were low at retail, at the OEM level margins had dropped, prices had dropped. And then at the root of it, and the Asian supply chain is where you once had 20 factories making entry-level and mid-level product. It became less and less attractive for those companies and instead of casting a golf club iron head, it became far more attractive for them to reinvent themselves and start casting widgets that would go into a skateboard or a freaking billy cart or whatever it might be. And so you had a contraction in the supply side in terms of the number of <coughs> people in China actually making golf product which kept the business alive because you were then sharing those, those spoils with less people and people survived. So come COVID and you hit a boom and you hit an unexpected and an unplanned boom where you, know, you talked about growing the game. Well, if you want to grow the game of golf, just give people more time, tell them they need to be healthier. Uh, well-being is more important than what you earned this week and golf is going to boom, and that's exactly what's happened. And so what has happened is it's just kept, it's caught the supply chain completely napping because all of a sudden you have 25%, 30%, 40% demand growth with an infrastructure that doesn't have that capacity because all of these factories in China that used to make golf clubs are now making Lego and billy carts and whatever else. So all of a sudden what we've seen is a dramatic extension of supply lead time. So historically we've been able to place an order on an Asian factory for a product program we were running and in 90 days that product would ship. We'd have it in 30 days, Bob's your uncle and away you go. Right now that's running typically somewhere between 120 and 100, uh, sorry, 150 and 100, sorry, 180 days, six months to nine months, to 270 days. So if I order 6,000 introductory sets today, I would look like having them at the earliest in September of next year. So that's caused a massive delay and demand pressure and inflationary pressure. At the same time, the US economy post-COVID has gone nuts with all the stimulus money. And so you have this incredible imbalance of trade between Asia and the US. And so we've had and the, the infrastructure they're talking about and the freight delays. So to put that into perspective, one year ago to ship a 40 foot container full of beginner sets of which there's say 700 sets in that container, that would have cost us about $4,000 US door-to-door. Today, I'm paying $25,000 for that same container. So amortise that across those 700 sets, and you can see the $15 raw cost or thereabouts 
at times $25 per set raw cost, depending on the size of the bulk of the product, blah, blah. And that's being transferred straight to the consumer. So we've seen inflation at the bottom end of the golf market in the order of 25% in the last 12 months. So, so what was selling for 500 bucks a year ago, uh, effectively you're going to pay 7.99 for this summer. Uh, as a result of the supply chain challenges, which are, by the way, not going to be addressed. <clears throat> I mean, these are long-term systematic infrastructure issues, both on the supply and the ability of Asian factories to supply the quantity of product the world's demanding. And then second, secondly, the shipping areas. It's a little bit like the Australian dollar where they say the um, it, it uh, goes up uh, up by the elevator and de- no, up by the stairs and down by the elevator, uh, and, and these uh, shipping rates uh, are seen as somewhat similar. So we're looking at eighteen months to two years before we get to anything we would consider normal in shipping for containers. And you know the word is it's never going to get back to that four grand. Normal in the future might be more like eight or ten grand, and that might be eighteen months away. And there's also that manipulation then of saying because I don't want it to go back there because why would I want it to go back to four grand if all of a sudden I can make eight grand for the container so you then manipulate supply I mean as the cynical as the cynical consumer I remember many years ago the Kobe earthquakes um, going back to 1994 I from memory uh, maybe 95 um, there was one of the biggest selling golf balls in Australia that um, had a, a massive all of a sudden price rise and limit on demand you could only buy two dozen at a time of the PGF Optima Toursoft because of the Kobe earthquakes impacted on the factories, despite there was a year's supply of ball already on the water. Um, so th- there's just that challenge of, of trust, of manipulating outcomes. And I'm not saying that suppliers are or, or golf companies are, but the whole way along the supply chain, why would I ever want to sell container space at $4,000 for a 40-footer if I can sell it for 8000 Or 25000 it's not or twenty or or twenty five thousand, and you know it's not like I can say no, I'm not paying that, <laughs> because I'll come and pick it up myself. You don't get this stuff, so you know the seven or eight or ten major shipping lines around the world run a somewhat monopolistic structure, and they are making a fortune at the minute, and will continue to do so. But there's also another counter argument that says. All we're doing is getting back to the type of pricing and value that was in place, Phil, when you and I started in the golf business, which I dare I remind you is now looking something like 35 years ago. It is looking like <clears throat> And we would sell the Pilgrim Challenger buggy <laughs> with the Bellevue Light pencil bag. The I reckon it was the Brosnan Taipan 357 iron a wooden a putter for 199 bucks, uh, or a seven-piece set for 299 or 399. So we sell up like a year ago, two years ago, we were selling a 14-piece set of decent quality with graphite shafted woods, nice cart bag for 399. Yeah, yep. Like 20 years ago, stuff was more expensive. So there's also a reasonable commercial argument to say that the 
stagnation of the golf industry has caused such deflation that it was starting to become so unprofitable for many of these factories. They got out of it. And what we're seeing now is just a normalization of, at the end of the day, if you'd like to buy a set of clubs to get into golf, you're probably going to have to spend four or 500 bucks if you want a full set. But, or start off like we all did as kids with a driver and a 3579, a putter for 199 and if you like it, upgrade from there. Um, so to a large degree, there's quite a powerful argument to say that the golf consumer over the last 10 years has been spoilt by being able to buy incredibly high quality equipment at a very low price because of the previous 15 years history of the industry. Uh, and that now we're just getting back to some normalisation of prices to where, Phil, you'll also remember, the. I can remember in 1982, I'm guessing it was, at Ray Drummond in Franklin Street in Melbourne, selling Ping Eye 12 club sets for 2000 bucks for a set, uh, two, sorry, twenty four ninety nine, And we were allocated two sets a, a month. That's all we could get. Now, that's darn near 40 years ago. Yes, and look, if I go back to 1995, and I remember getting my hands on a, still using Persimmon Woods, but being able to take out a Mizuno, it might have been a Tezoid full titanium three wood that had this beautiful red shaft in it. And um, just make sure you don't damage it. Why is that? Because uh, they're 1495 retail. Um when the burner, when the the Talamade burner bubble first came out, the titanium, the very first full titanium one, was twelve ninety five or twelve ninety nine. So it did exist, um, and I think this is that that balance of golf's never been more affordable. You but you can get into it at whatever level you want. And I think the the golf consumer has been very spoiled, and for a company like ours that really focuses on the value end of the market, I mean, we're heading into a, it's a good time to buy shares in Tourage. Let's just, let's, <laughs> let's just put it that way for sure. But um, yeah, demand is holding up very strongly here in the US. It's forecast to stay very strongly through all of next year. Um, and so, you know, no one has the ultimate crystal ball, but that the, the, the uh, COVID has been a blessing for golf and, and let's hope it remains and we continue to make a great product and make it accessible and because it is a great game and it's unique and there's nothing like it and you've talked and waxed lyrical about growing the game for many years and there's nothing wrong with the game. We just have to keep introducing people to it and water will find its right level as it always does. I think you're probably right. And the last point I'm going to make because I had the one of the joys – John of my um, golfing life was heading out to regional Victoria and I, it seems I stumbled upon a bit of a what could only be described in Australian Parliament as a Dorothy Dixon for you because we were chatting about my joy of going to Leon Gather Golf Club in Gippsland and discovering this Vern Morecambe delight of a golf course. Um, Vern Morecambe being the legend he is and lo and behold um, John, what was it that when I said to you, have you played Leon Gatha Golf Club? Which, by the way, everyone listening needs to make a beeline there and pop in at Borough Brewery on the way there. But I said, John, have you played Leon Gatha Golf Club? Funny you should ask, Phil. But um, 
Some of your listeners may remember way, way back then, the Lee and Gather Open was actually a signature event of the Ivo Witten Trophy in the annual... It was a 72-hole event. Uh, it had such luminary winners in the past of uh, Mike Clayton, Clyde Boyer, who was a pretty good amateur player for a long, long time, um, famous going back to Randall Hicks, John Munro, Mike Cusack. I mean, these are legendary figures of amateur golf in the 1970s and 1980s uh, in Melbourne. And, yes, I was lucky enough to salute the judge in 1983, it was. Played the final round with... Bradley Hughes led him by <laughs> led him by a couple going into the last round. And Brad, Brad and I were mates back then. We roomed together in state teams. And while I was a couple of years older than Brad, or three years in fact, and as a, as I've always said, I knew I never had a career in golf because Brad Hughes was three years younger and three shots around better, um, and was only going to get better from there. But yeah, Peter Murphy won the year after Paul Maloney. But the Lee and Gather Open was a stalwart event on the really Australian amateur uh, circuit for a long, long time. And beautiful course, like Sandy, could be in the sand belt. Uh, beautiful terrain, rolling hills, great shapes, great bunkering. Yeah, a, f- a fond memory. And on that note of a fond memory, John, we will bring this um, Tenuous Links podcast to a close. My very big thanks to our special guest, Executive Vice President of Tour Ridge Golf Global, uh, Mr. John Craig, John from Chicago. Thanks, John. Good on you, Phil. Lovely to see you. Nice to catch up as always. And uh, to all, all the barons out there, stay baronesque and stay safe. Uh, and remember to uh, go to golfbarons.com to subscribe to get um, all our podcast updates, show updates, and also stay tuned for the latest and next issue of our awesome Barons Life Golf and Lifestyle magazine. Uh, and until next time, Barons, add some swaggity swings.